0: So thankful for what God has given us here at this church. There are so many uh, unusual gifts and such an abundance of them that has already been rehearsed today. God has done wonderful things with this congregation for which none of us can take credit and for which all of it He takes glory. And one of those unusual things we're going to discuss even now. As we now turn our attention to the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to read beginning at verse 17 to the end of the chapter, now hear the word of God. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes of his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. For when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Our gracious Father, open our eyes today to the word of truth. And may we know the truth. May the truth set us free. Grant us a fullness of the Spirit so that we can discern the spiritual things that can only be spiritually appraised. And teach our hearts and instruct us with wisdom that we might live righteously before the Lord our God And we pray that you would bring forth the fruit of righteousness from the preaching of your word, the hearing of it, the reception, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I must almost apologize at the beginning of this time together for this message that I am preaching this morning is more of a message of polemics, and it is going to be in some ways, demanding of your mind to stay in a cognitive, sustained uh, position of reasoning. So I'm going to ask a lot of you, because I'm going to give a lot to you. So I trust that you will tune your minds of your hearts in, that you will get a pen out, that you will pinch yourself or whatever it takes to stay attuned, to this important message this morning. We are continuing in our series on our vision, and it would not be complete without a biblical treatment on covenant communion, or what is sometimes labeled paedo-communion. Heritage is one of the congregations in the CPC, and one of the very few Presbyterian churches ever in existence that practices covenant communion. Because of that, it's important that we cover this topic as part of our vision to explain why we take this position. As we can look around the landscape of our nation, and we see what's going on out there, it should be something that causes us to pause and say, "What is wrong?" And when we look at the church and we look at the state of the church today in America, while God is doing many wonderful things and many congregations, the church is greatly slipping. And the church of America today is in great need of a reformation a reformation of the Word of God, a reformation to be called to prayer, a reformation of worship reformation of humility and getting on our face and calling out to God, pleading with Him. And when the church gets itself right, then the nation will have a hope. What we need as part of that reformation is a recovery of the doctrine and the practice of the Lord's Supper. There are many sound, biblical, Protestant churches that do not partake of the Lord's Supper very often. Sometimes it's very seldom, once a quarter, once a month. And there are some that take of it every Lord's Day, as it should be. Then those who do receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper each Lord's Day, there's even a smaller number, much smaller number, of those congregations that allow all the baptized children to come to the table. And this may seem like a small thing or a marginalized thing, but this is a very important thing. If what is before us is a means of grace, then why would we neglect that which is a means of our salvation. This is an important point that needs to be addressed in the broader church, and it should not be marginalized, minimalized, because we are essentially starving our children and wondering why they are supposed spiritually emaciated in the church. Let me, as I began... I want to define the two positions that we're going to consider today. And please pardon me if I preach with a certain uh, amount of exhortation and conviction and not just kind of laying it out there for you to take it as it will. Now you can do that, but I'm going to preach it from my conviction because I feel strongly on this. Two definitions or two positions that I want to express explain here today, because those are going to be the two that I'm going to interact with. And we're going to limit this to Presbyterian circles for now, because that's by and large where the debate is. The first position is what we would call the credo-communion position. This is the position where baptized infants cannot come into the table until they are confirmed by the elders when the elders can hear their profession of faith and be satisfied with that. Now, those who hold this position, which is by and large the majority of Presbyterian churches today, must have a two-tier membership in the church. It would go like this. There is a non-communicate membership, and those are for baptized children, but who are not yet allowed to come to the table. They are baptized into the church. They are acknowledged as members of the body of Christ, but they are not in fellowship with God nor the saints. And frankly, I think this position despises their baptism. And then there is what they would acknowledge as a communicant membership, which is where a person is now in communion or fellowship. We've covered that word, yeah? And they may participate, commune, at the table with Christ and his people. Communicate membership. So you've got a non-communicate membership and you've got a communicate membership. And the dividing line is all around this table. And so you have a two-tier membership. Those terms are not only unbiblical, but they set forth a halfway, a form of a halfway covenant, and clearly do not see children in full membership of the church until at the time that they can make a profession of faith. They would also exclude all baptized, retarded people who cannot verbalize a profession of faith. And some ministers will, even in this camp, withdraw communion from elderly saints with dementia when they are unable to verbalize their profession any longer to be consistent with their position. Well, the second position that I would like to, um, which is my position, which is the position of this church, it may not be your personal position, but it is that of this church, is paedo-communion, or probably betterly called covenant communion. This doctrine and practice is essentially that as soon as a baptized infant is weaned and can eat substantive food, solid foods, that they can eat from the Lord's table right along with all of other God's people. All of God's people. Baptized children are in the covenant. And therefore they ought to eat of the covenant meal with Christ that Christ has prepared for them as well as for you. And because they are baptized, we consider them as members of the body of Christ and they are in fellowship with Christ and His people. And there is a universality and a oneness of the church that is one of her very defining characteristics, as Paul would say in the fourth chapter or the third chapter of Galatians, "...for as many as of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ." While the majority of the Presbyterians do not hold this pato or this covenant communion perspective, we should recognize, however, that historically, the early church baptized their infants, they kept them in the worship service with them, along with their families, and they all ate of the Lord's Supper together. The church in the eastern part of the world has always held this belief, even up to this day after 2,000 years. They wonder, what's the problem? It is my understanding that the church of the West had the very same practice up into the 11th century or so. So while this congregation is in a very small minority position of today's modern evangelical world, I would contend that we are still in the majority over the history of the church. And that should give us pause to consider if there might be something in the modern church that we're missing or is not properly understood biblically. Unfortunately, this debate can become quite heated among Presbyterians, and straw men are quickly erected and assigned to particular camps. While I believe I have church history on my side in this argument, I want to appeal just to the Scriptures this morning in an attempt to make a persuasive argument that we should, only, that we should have, that should be, our baptized children coming to the Lord's Supper on every occasion that we observe it as has been our practice and our belief since we started. And before I get into the argument to support my biblical position, I want to give you the one and the only one place that a credo communion proponent will go to establish their case that you keep children away. And it's right in front of us. The argument goes like this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It commands us to to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, it requires, requires the recipient to be able to discern the Lord's body and to be able to examine himself, something they claim that a young child cannot do. And if a young child cannot do this, then therefore he shouldn't come to the table until he is able to do that. And whoever cannot partake of the Lord's table with the ability to examine himself or to discern the Lord's body should not come because they might invite judgment upon themselves because they are not discerning the Lord's body. Therefore, there are severe consequences for the improper participation in the Lord's Supper. And on that point, we will all agree. And that's a pretty serious thing. It's very serious to Receive of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now I will confess that this is a serious offense for either side of the argument that you're going to argue. The credo position will contend that we are allowing our children to drink judgment upon themselves because they are not able to discern the Lord's body. But I would contend that they are the ones not discerning the Lord's body and hence judgment may fall upon them, not upon us. You're not going to escape the argument no matter what side you come upon. Now, judgment is the Lord's. And He certainly can be very merciful when we are ignorant. But it is my hope, people, that you do not remain ignorant on this. Now, let's take those three or four verses to form your argument around those verses. And when you do take that three or four verses to form your argument and you wrestle them out of the context that is a serious thing to do in fact that is how most biblical errors in or errors in biblical interpretation occur when you wrestle what is there out of its context most cults can go right to the Bible and justify their position because they have wrestled them out of context and maligned, really, what the Word of God says. We want to be very careful here, so let's summarize the context. In very brief form, here's the context in which this particular passage nestles in. 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14 are the immediate context for which this particular passage of verses 17 through 34 rests. And in First Corinthians chapter 11 through 14, that is the immediate context where Paul is addressing the Corinthian church regarding corporate worship and the corrective nature that he had to give them regarding corporate worship. I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, that section sits in the context of this entire epistle that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. And that epistle sits in the context of a greater context of the entirety of scriptures, particularly the context of the Old Testament scriptures, which would have been more in circulation and more abundant to connect to. The Old Testament is the context for which all of the New Testament stands. So let's go back and let's put these things now in context. To do that we have to go back to the Old Testament. Something every Presbyterian is willing to do for baptism but very reticent when it comes to communion. But we have to do that. The context of the Old Testament. Let's look at the biblical context of the Old Testament. First of all, And I realize this is going to be uh, very quick and very brief, and I'm trying to cover a lot of material in a very short amount of time. But the children, we have to acknowledge, ate the manna in the wilderness, and they drank of the water that came out of the rock. Would you agree with that? 1 Corinthians 10, which is in the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 11, specifically states that while the manna was the main sustenance for God's people in the wilderness, it was also sacramental. And we know that the bread which comes down from heaven identifies with Christ himself. He goes on to speak about the rock which they drank of, and that rock was Christ, Paul says in the 10th chapter, we've read that already. They were all baptized into Moses, the children, and the adults, and the mentally impaired, and the handicapped, and all of those who came out of Egypt, who were able to go through the Red Sea. They were all baptized as a covenant community, as the people of God, as God blessed them. And they all ate of the spiritual food and drank of the spiritual rock unless we try to explain it any other way, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. We should note that in 1 Corinthians 10... It is in this immediate context of 1 Corinthians 11, and it has a lot of sacramental language throughout the entire chapter, and it's identifying the sacraments in some sense of the Old Covenant, but it is using New Covenant sacramental language like baptism, identifying back to the Old Covenant sacraments, and we see a unity between the two. More of that in just a minute. But let's take another second notable of the Old Testament context. When we come to the Old Testament feasts, we're coming now more into the context of what we should be considering. The entire covenant community of God's people in the Old Testament ate of all of those feasts. There were three annual Sabbath pilgrimage feasts in the Old Testament. Of course, we know that that is... Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, and the Feast of Ingathering. There were other feasts, like the Feast of the Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, and and the Feast of the Trumpets and the blowing of the trumpets would have been a feast. Day of Atonement was more of a a very somber Sabbath on that one day a year. There was the Festival of the New Moons, and there was the Sabbath. All of God's people participated in these things. But let's talk about these annual three feasts And for the sake of time, I'll just brief over this, but for you to partake of these feasts, the one requirement was that you identify with Israel's God and that you were circumcised, and then if your household was was a part of this, then they were also able to eat of it too. So circumcision was a prerequisite to partake of these feasts, just as baptism is a prerequisite to take of the Lord's Supper. All the women and all the children in the covenant community were included and welcome to all these feasts. Now, why am I making such a point about that? I'm going to talk about that this afternoon. But let me establish that very quickly. The Passover in Exodus chapter 12. We read that extended portion this morning. It explicitly states that the very size of the lamb that they were to be chosen was going to be in accordance with the size of the household. And if the household is too small... Uh, for this entire lamb, they can group together in a couple of households so that the very size of the household would have been uh, the size of the lamb uh, and it was according to the number of the household that the very lamb was chosen. We should also note that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was inseparable to the Passover, was a feast that would then continue the Passover for seven days. And they were commanded to eat of unleavened bread, nothing with leaven in it, for seven days. That was going to be their food. It was their sustenance. Everyone in the covenant who was going to eat for a week was going to have to partake of Passover festival food. In fact, for not doing so was a very serious offense. That person shall be cut off from his people, the Scripture says. Again, let me draw your attention to the closer context in 1 Corinthians 11 that identifies the church with that Passover feast. You say it every Lord's Day. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Secondly, we have the Feast of the Weeks, which is Pentecost. That identifies with the coming of the Spirit in power upon the kingdom. When the kingdom of God comes to the earth, and the Spirit then is poured out upon all flesh in the covenant, including the little ones. That was one of the great um, promises and things that happen at Pentecost from the least to the greatest. It is to you and to your children this is what's going on, Peter is saying in Acts chapter 2. But this Feast of Weeks, which was going to be a precursor and a foreshadowing and a foretaste to that always on the first day of the week, by the way. says in Deuteronomy 16, Then you shall come together for the Feast of the Weeks to the Lord your God. And it says, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your Son... And your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who's within your gate, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow among you the, at the place where the Lord, your God, chooses to make His name abide. And then there's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of the Ingatherings, sometimes called the Feast of the Tabernacles. Again, Deuteronomy 16. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days and you shall rejoice in your feasts. You, and your son, and your daughter, and your male servant, and your female servant, and the Levite, and the stranger, and the fatherless widow, who are within your gates. All three annual feasts were for the entire congregation of Israel across all those demographics. And in Christ there is neither male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. This was a covenant feast before God for all of God's people. And notice the emphasis of the Scripture. It says, you shall rejoice before the Lord. You shall rejoice in your feast. That's what this is to be about. Rejoicing. Celebration. Feasting. unlike what so many make the Lord's Supper out to be today. Morose, morbid, and yes, we are to remember Christ's death, but we are on the side of the resurrection, and the cup of blessing which we bless is a cup of rejoicing. And that's the broader context. My argument for covenant communion goes like this, just from that broader context. The children of the covenant were always included in every festival sacramental meal in the Old Testament. And now, when we come to the New Testament, where there is more grace, more power, and more glory, even to the pouring out of the Spirit upon our children, how much more they ought to be included in the sacraments, including the sacred sacramental meal of Christ. And where did we find in Scripture that they should be excluded. There's not a single place. You remember the argument that comes against this from the present passage, would say, if a child cannot yet examine himself or discern the Lord's body, at this point, at the point where it is verified by the elders when he or she can verbalize their faith, then... He is eating in an unworthy manner and shouldn't eat of the Lord's Supper until such a time he is able to do so. But that is not at all what Paul was intending his readers to understand here. So let's enter into the context of our chapter through the context of the epistle itself. Remember, it's set in an epistle, it's not out of context, and is right part of the narrative of this entire epistle. And so let's look at the narrative of the epistle, the first epistle to the Corinthian church was written to correct so many problems that were primarily identified with factions, divisions, schisms, and heresies that were renting the body asunder. So chapter 1, Paul immediately gets into the objective for which he writes. Paul says he is confronting these very divisions. I hear, he says in verse 10 and 11, that there are divisions among you. And such things as ought not to be. For some are following after Peter, some are following after Apollos, some are following after Paul, and some are following after Christ. Whatever that means. Is Christ divided? He says. So in chapter 1, he immediately gets into the very focal point that he's going to be addressing with all of the problems that he's going to be correcting. And as this divided body, in chapter 1 and 2, he's going to address this dichotomy. The Jews are seeking for a sign. The Greeks are seeking for wisdom. But I want to know from you one thing, Christ and Him crucified. Because that division was getting into the body and dividing the body. Chapter 3, he continues dealing with the sectarianism that was dividing the body at Corinth. Chapter 4, he deals with the pride that makes some people more elevated than others, and that pride begins to minimize Paul's ministry to them. Yeah. Paul. No, I'm after Peter. I'm after Apollos. Chapter 5 is interesting because while they were allowing all the ungodly division, the one thing they didn't divide from were from the immoral people who should not be eating from the Lord's table. And so he has to band and correct their practice. Their pride had led them to include those who should have been barred. chapter 6, Paul addresses the issue of the division such that the relationships were so destroyed they couldn't even get along with each other. They were taking each other, members of one church in the same church, taking each other to court and suing them in the courts of the Romans and the civil magistrate, bringing shame upon the name of Christ by taking their business that they could have handled in the church to a place... That was dishonoring Christ. Chapters eight through 10, Paul instructs the church over the abuse of liberties and not to consider or care for one another. They're not considering the weaker brethren. They were very proud and very arrogant in their practice of liberties, and they didn't care how it affected other people. And again, this brought hurt and division. And then chapter 11 through 14. He now addresses the problem that has come right into their worship service. All this division and this cantankerous, prideful carnality, right in the worship of God. And so he spends those four chapters dealing with that. In chapter 11, he begins in verses 2 through 16, Addressing the resistance by some women not to cover their heads in worship, in chapter eleven, now in seventeen through thirty-four, which is our passage today, he's addressing the divisions in the body, and the abuse of the Lord's supper because of those divisions. In chapter twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, where thirteen is an excursion, but nestled. In this context, he's addressing problems of the abuse of spiritual gifts and the divisions they were causing the body. Divisions in the body over the spiritual gifts. What should have been for the edification and the building up. They were tearing it apart and dividing it. It's important to note here that these chapters are not prescriptive, but corrective. They are not how. To do things. This is not the how-to instruction manual, but the correcting of the problems of how not to do it. So many people have brought 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 particularly to mind in terms of the how-to worship service as opposed to, no, that's corrective, not prescriptive. Chapter 15 deals with a heresy which is causing divisions and a heresy over the most important thing, the resurrection of Christ. That's the context in which these verses are nestled. Now let's enter the text itself. No doubt there's warning here because there's a correction that Paul is addressing The warning passage in verses 27 through 34 is designed to correct the abuse that is going on in the Lord's Supper. The sin was schism, the sin was factions, the sin was division, and coming as one body partaking of the lord's supper they were missing the entire essence of what they were trying to what they were supposed to be doing by coming to union and fellowship with christ at the table when they were in disunity and disfellowshipping one another draw your attention in your bibles to verse 18 For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Yeah, I believe it, all right. Verse 20, when you come together, therefore, in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're saying it is, you think it is, but it's not. You're going through the form of godliness, but you're denying the power thereof, is how he may say it in another passage. Verse twenty one: For in eating, everyone takes before his before uh, for an eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunk. They're getting drunk off the communion wine. They're being a glutton off of all the food. It's not leaving others or enough food for the others to take of it. It was just a complete abuse of what the sacramental meal is supposed to be about. And he goes on, verse twenty two and he he's chastening them he's correcting what do you not have houses to eat in and do you not have houses to drink in get that settled before you come here because you or you despise the church of god notice that you show contempt for the church of god by the way you're coming to the lord's supper he says do I praise you in this i don't know if you can feel the heat of the apostle paul coming down On the Corinthian church in this particular uh, segment of the epistle, probably more than any other part in the epistle. It was so important and so hot that it was to the place where God Himself was judging them and they didn't know why people were getting sick and dying, and Paul saying, This is the reason. Therefore the purpose of Paul's warning was not to set prerequisites for intelligent participation, but the self-examination was a preventative measure to come to the table in communion with one another and not in disunity. They were despising the church of God in the way they were coming to the table. Now, The passage explicitly identifies the very reason Paul is writing this. It's corrective, it's addressing a problem. They were dividing in the body of Christ in their selfishness, their pride, and their ungodly divisions, and then they were coming to the table which which to identify their unity. And this was the sin specifically that Paul was confronting. It was a specific sin that he was confronting in this passage that he's identifying in it is their division when they come to the table. It's not an instruction manual on how we partake of the Lord's Supper as much as a warning of how not to partake of it and the corrective actions needed to ensure that they were not coming in an unworthy manner. That's the context. That's the setup. That's the point That Paul is addressing here. Now let's unpack the meaning a little bit more. In verse 29, it says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, what does the term body, the Lord's body, refer to? Does it refer to Christ's physical corporal body? or does it refer to the church the body of Christ Yes Yes both Now those who would say it refers to the Christ corporal physical body would do so in the immediate context of verse 27. Verse 27 says, Therefore whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. No doubt, and you can't argue, that he's talking there about the physical corporal body of Christ. For many, that's the argument right there just settles it. However, before we rest and jump too hastily and just corner ourselves on that one particular, we should also note that it is not uncommon for Paul to move between the literal and the metaphor. He did this earlier in chapter eleven when he's speaking about headship. And if you go back and read verses 2 through 16, you'll find where he jumps between the literal head of a woman and her metaphorical head and her husband and ultimately Christ. And he flips back between the two, between literal and metaphorical, in order to express something very particular that otherwise would have been much more difficult to express, but you can get it. You can identify what goes on her head in corporate worship by the headship of Christ, even under her husband. Paul flips back and forth here. He does this 18 times in chapter 12 when he's referring to the body of Christ as the church, and then he refers to the human body, arms and legs and mouths and noses and that kind of thing. And so he jumps between the literal to the metaphorical. He does this. He does this entirely through this whole chapter. And he does this in chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. I'm not even going to ask you to turn there because you are going to repeat this later. You're going to say it, I'm going to say it. We're just going to do that. You're going to see where the literal body of Christ is identified with the metaphorical body of Christ and how Paul switches between the literal and the metaphorical or between the literal and the mystical body of Christ in order to establish a point. By partaking of the one bread which communicates His body to us, the church becomes His body. It is the Corinthians' failure to discern the church body that has led to the comments and the warnings in 1 Corinthians 11. When one fails to discern the body that we have become, that is the church, he is thereby prone to act precisely in the way in which the Corinthians have been acting, that is divisively, and will thus become guilty of the body and blood of Christ." when you don't discern the church and who is in it and the body of Christ and you partake of this in a divisive way, then you are guilty of the body and blood of Christ if you come partaking of it in that way. Are you following me? It's both. But the sin that he is addressing and trying to correct is the sin of division within the body coming partaking of his body. You have to be in unity and fellowship and koinonia together with the entirety of the covenant community and take it as one with the husband. We can no longer separate the church from Christ. This is the very nature of koinonia. The Corinthians are sinning against the body and blood of the Lord precisely by the way they are sinning against one another as the community gathered around the Lord's table. Now, I'll stop here for just a moment and say, yes, the exhortation and the correction is for all of us to make sure that when we come to the Lord's table, we are in fellowship and love and relationship one with another, lest we be guilty of the Corinthian error. That is why it is a critically important for us to make sure that we have short accounts with one another, that we are not coming with bitterness and harboring murder in our hearts when we come to the table, because while we might have a form of godliness on the outside, we deny the power thereof, and therefore can be judged. It is a serious thing. So when Paul's talking about discerning the body in verse 29, he's referring to the church body secondarily to the physical body, but those two come together. And when one eats in an unworthy manner, he is despising the church, verse 22. Verse 22 and verse 29 go together. The church is the body, and the body which they are not discerning is that which they're despising. And when they come this way, despising the church, they are eating judgment to themselves because they are not eating of the Lord in a worthy manner. And all this has been turned around to make sure that some child can come with some verbal expression so that if he's at a baptism and he's not been condemned or judged uh, by by being unfaithful apostate, we have to then come up with some new criteria that is not biblical to be able to form a way in such that we now can bring them into a full covenant whereas before they were halfwayers. It just is nonsensical. It never was that way in the Old Covenant. It never was that way in the New Covenant. It hasn't been that way in the Church of the East for 2,000 years and for the West for about 1,100 Now, I agree that there's a warning here that we need to understand, but that warning is not against the children. The warning against those who actually are guilty of the sin that he is addressing. That's where the warning is. So when the question comes up, how can a young child examine himself and discern? How does a young infant despise the church? That, that's maybe what I might ask. You know, it's not the child that's so nearly as prone to be divisive at the Lord's table as it is his parents or the adults. Would you agree with that? 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 13. I'll briefly just give you a thumbnail sketch. Is it an appeal to the Old Testament which provides the framework for New Testament sacraments. The First Corinthians 10 passage. We only read through about verse 4, but if you go on and read First Corinthians 10, you'll see that they all ate of the manna. They all drank from the rock, including the children. And those sacraments were appended with threats and judgments They admitted the children. But who was it that fell in judgment in the wilderness? It was not the children. It was the adults who positively abused the sacraments that could not go into the promised land and who would not be able to stand. But it was the adults that abused the sacraments and therefore we are not to be ignorant but to learn from that example. We who are mature are in much greater danger of polluting the sacraments than those who are young. And that is why when Jesus says, unless you become like one of these little children, you will no wise inherit the kingdom of God. I was right there praying this morning as we started church. Lord, let me be like a little child who hasn't yet learned to fear, but just to trust his father, but who has just... Not yet learned to have all of his joy sequestered and, and, and oppressed because he just doesn't know any better than to laugh and run around the house and rejoice in goodness of life. Dad's got this covered. I'm protected. I don't need to wait. And then I grow up and I learn how to worry. And I learn how to... Th- Lord, let me be like the little child once again. That was Amen. my prayers. The music was playing this morning. There are many warnings in the body of Christ that a preacher would give with young children present and included, but the children are not capable of performing. And you need to understand this. If you do not work, neither should you eat. Does that mean that we should starve our two-year-olds because they can't get up and mow the grass? That's not at all what the intention of the apostle was meaning in 2 Corinthians 3.10. Nor is it what the... Prophet was saying when he says, Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. He's speaking that to the entire congregation, including women and children and all of that. But he goes on and he is not saying that, expecting the infants and two year olds to be able to defend the widow and and to come to the aid of the oppressed. That's not the point. We all get that. But it's precisely aimed at those who were not doing those things in order to bring the correction to the offenders that these commands were aimed. If you can keep the context and keep the focus and keep the purpose for which the apostle and the prophets are giving the Scripture, it'll help you to understand exactly what these things mean. The warning was not about working in not eating or defending the fatherless, that would apply then to small children who are incapable of doing these things. It's exactly what Paul is doing in First Corinthians 11. So while we do not withhold food from our small children until they reach such an age where they can work, neither should we withhold the bread and the wine or the gospel from them until they reach an age, whatever age that would be, that's quite debatable, until they can fully intellectually explain all these things in detail. The warning of 1 Corinthians 11 is a preventative measure against the positive abuse to those who were capable of such and who were already committing such. Moms and dads, that's us. It was never intended to keep children from the table to whom it was due. It was never to abrogate the whole plan in which God had already worked through all the children in the Old Testament when they feasted and greatly rejoiced and running around in the fields, and, and yet we come to the new covenant with more power and more grace and more glory and more spirit poured out upon them. We say, no, no, no. You sit over there in the margins. Sit over there while we eat. You just watch us eat. No, no. If properly understood, I might humbly suggest that those who withhold the covenant children from the table, it is they and not us who is not discerning the Lord's body by not recognizing that the children should be included and come. They are, in effect, committing the very sin they are concerned our children may commit and the sin of excluding from fellowship those who ought to. To be included. Now that's strong language. And we are to have much charity and much grace. But we ought to know biblically why we believe and what we do and why it is important. I want you to look out over this congregation who have been sitting so patiently with me for 50 minutes and you look at the children. That is not by accident. We're going to break bread in just a few minutes. And these little children are going to hold that piece of bread until we all eat together. And they're going to wait. And they wait. Because they've been trained to wait. And if they don't get their bread and they don't get their wine, they miss it. They long for it. And they should because God is working in them something that longs for the gospel and for the rejoicing that we all rejoice in for God Himself and for Christ. That is good, people. That is gospel beauty, people. And that is what you're going to see in just a few minutes. And they're going to sit there. They're not going to be like, Now, they're trained, right? They're trained. Just like Paul was training the Corinthians. You've trained them. They're going to sit there. And I'm going to say, in the body of Christ, which is broken for you, take and eat. And you're going to see everybody's hand go to their mouth, and they're going to eat. That's when the children eat. didn't take very long to get to there. And you're going to see... That this congregation with all these children is quite exceptional. That is not anything due to us. That is because we are following the means of grace and the word of God. And it should not be a question that why God has blessed us and our children so much. It is related to his very instruction of what we now embrace. And it's important. Folks, this is important for the vision. I'm going to be dead someday. And we need to be faithful to the Bible. And we need to be rejoicing in things that God says to rejoice in. And we need to be festive in our spirit and be happy that our children are included. When Jesus tells Peter, Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep, Peter. Do you love me, Peter? Feed and tend my lambs, Peter. But it is unfortunate that so many of the conversations we have around the Lord's table seems to be anything but joyous. They become contentious. And I will say if there's someone that does not hold to the same view, you take the high ground and you maintain the essence of the Lord's table, which is the unity of God's people, and you love them and be charitable to them, and you love them with Christ's love, but do not allow Satan to come into the sacraments, the very symbol of our unity, our very identity with Christ, and do not allow Him to divide us over the very emblems that are chosen to be our signs of unity. Be charitable. Embrace the essence before you even embrace the element. And so you come prepared, embracing the essence of unity with Christ, one with another, as one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father, but one church, one body, as we come together in the oneness This is a feast that should be characterized with joy and singing and feasting and joy and rejoicing and just festival. It's a festival, people. Not a sense of morose, morbid introspection that is not fitting for the occasion until such a time that we can intellectually verbalize the uh, lapsarian arguments and the decrees of God from the larger catechism with the express approval of of the PhDs who would oversee that, that is not at all the intent of this meal that is to instruct our hearts as we feed upon Christ. A child never had to learn how to eat and suck from his mother's breast. And so, here Christ has given us and our children an innate sense to desire to feed upon Him as we come to the table. Let's not deny that to our children. Our gracious Father, this has been a challenging message in many areas, and we do pray that Your Spirit would take it and register it into our minds and into our hearts. We pray that we would be open to this and that we would love this and that our children would embrace this in the coming generations and that we could see a reform in the church. Oh, would to God that the church would be having the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. And would to God that we would not deny our children those very things that You have given to them as You rebuke the disciples when they try to prevent the little children, even the suckling babes, from coming to You. Lord, we pray that you would guide us in our spirit that as we come around the table, it would be truly a time of joy, time of looking around and feasting one with another and with our children in the gospel of grace, knowing that Christ himself feeds us with his body and his blood and life everlasting. So we pray that you would bless this time and be glorified in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.